0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from the World. This is David Robert Farmerie. This week's episode will be, let's say, a bit of a departure from what I would normally be talking about. This week, the story is about me. Creating these podcast episodes has been challenging, to say the least, since the onset of the COVID virus. You know, not being able to be on the road and not being engaged with people or even being engaged with my own experiences, I have been left with no stories that are fresh in my mind. I mean, within me, literally, there are hundreds of stories, stories of others as well as stories of my own. But I have never been very good at just telling one of these stories without any prompting. And by prompting, I'm referring to someone simply asking me something which sparks a recollection of a story or of an experience. And for the past several months, again, you know, because of the COVID virus as well as the motorcycle accident, I have been day after day just kind of sitting in the house, only talking with the cats. And as inquisitive as cats can be, they just seem to have no comprehension of the human language. Then again, for all I know, the cats, either on their own or more dangerously as a collective, may have a better comprehension of the human language than I give them credit for. So for all I know, they may have been asking me all along to share stories with them, and I just didn't understand. And that is why I have decided, or at least that's my excuse for having decided, to break some of my rules and share a bit of my background this week. Not my background as a photographer, but more specifically, my background as a child. Perhaps this will even help you to understand me a little better. I should tell you, though, that this reflection into my past has not been sparked out of the blue. In fact, quite the opposite. It has been sparked by two very disparate stimulus. The first stimulus was returning to writing my very first novel, which is based on the In Search of America documentary that I've been working on for several years. The second impetus was that of Cousin Mary. And not directly, but it just so happened that for whatever reason, I was thinking about Mary, and when I think about Mary, I tend to reflect back, and that was what was happening this time. Now, I should clarify that Cousin Mary isn't actually my cousin, at least not by blood, but she is my cousin in my heart. Her dad, the beloved Uncle Charlie, who was also not my uncle by blood, but indeed my uncle from the heart, is Mary's dad. I never said that this would be a non-convoluted story, but you know what? Just buckle your seatbelts and take the ride with me. Now, since I've touched on the subject of Uncle Charlie, let me continue for just a minute with that subject matter. Because Charlie was a man of true greatness, and I'm not exaggerating. This is a man that I idolized for my entire life. And just to clarify, not that it really matters, but Uncle Charlie was the brother-in-law of my dad's brother, Jack, so we are not that far from being blood-related. Anyhow, when I was really young, I mean very young, Uncle Charlie worked for one of the two daily newspapers in Pittsburgh. He worked as, I think it's called, a press man. It's where they actually do the printing of the newspaper itself. And anyhow, every time someone in the Farmery family got married, Uncle Charlie would present them with this front page mock up of the newspaper with the announcement of their nuptials in big, huge, bold headlines. And Uncle Charlie was also an avid amateur photographer. Throughout my career as a pro photographer, Uncle Charlie was the person that kept me grounded. He was always my rock and my reminder of why I love the craft of photography. Several years before he and then subsequently his wife, Aunt Shirley, died, I was so very fortunate to make a portrait of him and then a portrait of both of them. And I have to tell you that never has a photo session touched me the way that this one did. And mostly for reasons that I truly still cannot put into words. Part of it, I know, was obviously because it was Uncle Charlie and it was Aunt Shirley, but also it included Mary and her husband, Mark, and we made this big thing of it. And, you know, Uncle Charlie was an avid fisherman, and I got sparked with this idea to put him in waders and have a fish. Anyhow, you know, everybody gathered all the stuff that we needed, and Uncle Charlie so willingly put all this stuff on, and it truly made a remarkable photograph. I will put the two portraits up on the website and put a link in the episode notes so that you can click on it and see them for yourself. My dad, as well as Uncle Jack, were also avid photographers. I never tired of looking at the photographs that my dad shot. I would dig them out of boxes and just look at them over and over again. My dad truly could have been a great photojournalist, but his interest in photography really had little to do with the actual photograph or the end result. His interest was in the mechanics of how the camera worked. And in his younger days was when the 35mm camera was invented. And this is what he shot with. So even when I was a very young child, I was exposed to photography. And no, that's not intended to be a pun, but thank you for thinking that it was. Anyhow, I still remember sitting on my dad's lap when I was younger than five, and I know that it was before five because the age five was a great milestone year for me, which I'll talk about that in a little bit. Anyhow, I would sit on his lap and I would pull long rolls of developed negatives out of the metal film cans that he had in the step table drawer that sat beside his recliner, and I would just look at them. I was fascinated by them. And after he died, I tried to use his camera through trial and error because there was no one else to show me. And I have to say, I did not have much success. But I truly loved the feel of the camera in my hand and looking through the viewfinder. I also loved the feel of the film, the processed film running through my fingers. You see, my dad, who was my very, very best friend, died about a month before my 12th birthday. And a week later, my grandpa, who was my second very best friend, died as well. My grandpa taught me how to drink. I mean, literally. Periodically, Elmer Schaefer, with his wife Charlotte, who had this bright flaming red hair, they would pull up in front of the house in their silver Thunderbird convertible with a red rolled leather interior. When they entered the house, they parted company. Charlotte went with my grandma to play cards, canasta mostly, I think it was, and Elmer, my grandpa, went into the kitchen where I would join them. Sardines packed in yellow mustard, Iron City beer, in the occasional shot of whiskey. I would sit with them, eating the sardines and drinking a little beer. Periodically, he, grandpa, would pour me a small shot of whiskey. Until, of course, the day that my mother happened to walk in at that very moment. Now, my mother, for the most part, was a really laid-back woman. But when something rolled her, she was like a cross between a chihuahua and a pit bull. And from that day on, it was Canada-dried ginger ale that was poured into my shot glass. After all, I suppose, I was only five or six. My grandma was the one who taught me the love of nature and of gardening. I was about six when I was given my first plant to put in the ground. It was a purple and white petunia. I still remember it so vividly. I planted it in the flower bed that ran along the right side of the house and culminated at the dogwood tree. Grandma would also, this was so great, she would dig worms and feed them to the robins that had nested each year on the back porch just where the rafters met the roof. It was just amazing to watch this experience. My grandma also had the most impeccable fingernails, and they were always painted in a bright red nail polish. Now, I did say that I would tell you about my milestone year when I was five, but first, just a little background. Okay, My dad was a machinist by trade, but he also built things. In fact, one of the things that he was very well known for was building the tiny cars that one would see in the circus where, you know, like a dozen clowns or 15 clowns would emerge from this seemingly too small car. Anyhow, my dad was also an avid motorcycle rider. And according to my mother, I began riding on the gas tank when I was three. And by the time I was four years old, I was allowed to hold the handlebars while he would let go. But then, when I was five, on Christmas morning, I came out to find my very own motorcycle. It was the first mini bike that was ever made. My dad, yes, invented the mini bike. Anyhow, this one was a replica of my dad's Triumph motorcycle. He had built it from scratch, having machined most of the parts, including the gears themselves, himself by hand. I still remember the white faux leather ottoman that was sitting near where the motorcycle was, and I was so excited that when I got on it and I leaned it a little bit, the brake handle actually poked a hole in the ottoman. That's how vivid my recollection of that Christmas morning still is. Every year from the time I was pretty young, I can remember I would sleep outside from early spring through late fall. I would sleep either in a canvas pop-up tent that I set up in the backyard or just in my sleeping bag and I laid it on the front porch. It was the sleeping bag on the front porch that I soon realized was the most rewarding. Again, a little background. I grew up in a tiny borough called Emsworth, and why they called it boroughs and not towns, I don't know, but it's really unimportant. Anyhow, it was a suburb of Pittsburgh located, oh, about uh, 12 miles or so outside north of the main city. You know, in this neighborhood, this borough was really very ethnically diverse, and it was such a great place to grow up because it was here that I learned the love of foods and of cultures. I grew up on Huntington Avenue which is really unimportant other than it was a very short street with two smaller offshoots and within this tiny part of the neighborhood there were Hungarians and Poles and Germans and French and several more and so every time I went to a friend's house for dinner I would have a different type of ethnic food. It was as a child in, in, in this neighborhood that for the first time I had Hungarian goulash and I had pizza. And at this time, there were no pizza shops around. It was an amazing experience. And it also taught me to be open-minded and to try things. But it was at the far end, the dead end of Huntington Avenue, that the uniqueness of my childhood experiences was blown out of the water. It was at this dead end marked by two pillars, one on either side of the street, that marked the entrance to the Dixmont Mental Hospital. It was a state-run mental institution. The house that I lived in was a quadplex owned by my grandma and my grandpa. They lived on the first floor on the right side of the place and we lived in the apartment upstairs of them. On the left side of the place upstairs was the apartment for my aunts Rena and Laura. Aunt Laura, she was batshit crazy, but in the most wonderful of ways, truly. I adored her. Aunt Rena was a hat maker. She worked for a large department store in the city called Joseph Horn, and Aunt Rena made hats for the very rich in the city like the scapes and the melons and so on. She had also been invited at one point to make a hat for one of the horses in the St. Augustine, Florida, Easter Parade, which I came to find out was a rare honor indeed because it was reserved for only the most creative hat makers in the United States. But on the bottom floor, on the left side of the place, was Ann Beatty and her daughter Jackie, who, at the time, I had a huge crush on. Anyhow, Ann was a nurse at the mental hospital. But even more importantly to this story is that she was one of the few nurses that treated the patients with dignity. Because of this, when a patient would escape, which was not a rare occurrence by any means, they would make their way to the front porch, and how they knew that Anne lived there is beyond me, but anyhow, they would make their way to the front porch of the house, which spanned the entire width of the building. And many mornings, I would wake in my sleeping bag to the squeaking sound of the glider, and for those of you that are a bit younger, you know, a a glider is actually a metal port swing, but instead of being suspended by chains, it was secured to two metal rails that allowed it to act in a gliding motion back to front, hence, you know, the name glider. Anyhow, I would hear this glider squeaking, and when I would wake up and look, one of the nummies who had escaped from the hospital was in the glider. And before you react to my use of the term nummies, let me clarify that this was actually and still is a very endearing term. It was not derogatory in any way. I truly loved these people. Getting back to the story. Anyhow, I would hear this noise and then I would crawl out of my sleeping bag and joined the nummy on the glider until Anne was also wakened by the sound and came out to greet us. Each time, she would invite both of us to come into her apartment, sit in the kitchen while she made us all breakfast. The nummy and I would continue talking until it was time to eat breakfast, and then during breakfast, Anne would take up the conversation, and afterwards, after we were all finished eating, Anne would finish getting dressed for work, and she would walk the patient back to the hospital. But in the following years, I would spend much of my summer days with the nummies. During the day, they would work in a large field where they grew produce for the hospital. Sometimes I would even help them to plant or harvest, depending on the time of year. But the most enjoyable part for me was lunchtime. We would all sit either in the street itself or along the side of the street to eat. They were provided paper bag lunches, and I always brought my own. But during these times, I would have conversations with them, generally one-on-one, which was the best. I truly have no idea what we talked about because, after all, I was just a kid and they were nuts. But I do remember this one man who would smoke cigarettes and then periodically put the glowing end to the palm of his hand burning holes in the skin. And then there were the bearded twins. They were sisters. I would, from time to time, join them on their favorite bench. As I mentioned before, I truly loved these people. When the state eventually closed down the hospital, I was devastated at the loss of so many of my friends. And they truly had, in many ways, become my friends. Across the street from the house was the back entrance to Sam's tavern. Sam Giovingo, the establishment's owner and full-time bartender, also had this large fenced-in vegetable garden. Sam was the typical Italian immigrant. His English was perfect, but the accent was still there and it was still strong. The tavern ended up being in many ways my second home. I would sit at the bar with the locals, the regulars. I would eat blind robin, which is a fish that is heavily salted and secured in cellophane packets. Periodically, I would switch to Slim Jims, which then Slim Jims were real and good. I still remember Jim. I don't know if I ever knew Jim's last name. I just remember him to be the tall, rugged type. It was in front of Sam's on the sidewalk that Jim taught me how to shoot a bow. The target was a small crab apple tree across the way where the streetcars would turn around. But one night, Jim came out the back entrance of Sam's, I guess he had a snootful as they say, and he was wielding a single-barreled 12-gauge shotgun and looking for something to shoot. Ann Beatty's cousin, Bob, who was living with her during his divorce, went over and rather bravely talked Jim down. While he did this, we all hunkered down behind the picture window and watched the drama unfold. When I was about 10 years old, one of Ann Beatty's other cousins moved in with her with her three kids. Bob had since moved out. Her name was Linda Black, but better known as Linda Gamble the 1960 Playboy Playmate. Well, what can I say? Each year, when I was in Catholic school, we had to sell these stamps of sorts. It was to raise money for the school or the diocese or something. Anyhow, each year, we, my friends and I, would go door to door to door to door trying to sell these stamps. But after Linda moved in, well, that year, we all raced to be the first. At her door. And since my grandma owned the place, I had clout. I knocked, Linda opened the door, and oh my, what my ten-year-old eyes would see. I still remember the white outfit that she was wearing. In fact, it may have been one of the outfits that she actually wore in one of her photos for Playboy magazine. All I can say is that it left an indelible mark on me. But the truth of the matter is that Linda was really, at least in my recollection, a really sweet person, although in talking with my mother about her years later, she may have also been a little, shall we say, ditzy. I remember that her three kids were kind of jerks. But then again, they had just moved to Emsworth from Hawaii. Courtney, Byron and Alexi. For some reason, I still remember their names clearly. I also remember that Linda was going through some kind of a brutal divorce because that drama was always ever unfolding around us. Eventually, Linda packed up the kids, bought the white 1957 Cadillac for my mother, the car that my dad had bought for my mom about a year before he died. Linda drove it to California, and that was the last we heard of her, including, as my mother mentioned to me years later, the payment for the car. By the time I was 14, my grandma had decided to sell the building and move into an apartment. Both Aunt Rena and Aunt Laura had since died, and I was leaving everything that I was attached to. This was truly devastating for me. The mental hospital, too, was closed now, and the patients scattered to the wind. About 15 years ago, I went back to the house where I grew up. The wishing well that my grandpa built for all of us to play on was gone. So was the crabapple tree in the backyard and the dogwood tree on the side of the house. In the front of the house where my grandma's tulip beds were admired by so many, year after year, was now paved over with asphalt and the cab of a semi-rig parked on it. Sam Giovingo's huge vegetable garden that was across the street was now gone as well. It too had been paved over and turned into a parking lot. And so it goes. Life moves on, things change, and our past, for better or worse, only lives on within us. For me, it was mostly great. In fact, I often feel sheepish when people talk about how awful their childhood was because mine was, again, for the most part, idyllic. I had parents and grandparents that taught me about life and allowed me my ample space to grow. I had the Ohio River where I learned to swim. In fact, during my early teenage years, I would spend my summers in the river. My mother forbid me to swim in the river and somehow always knew when I did. In my adult years, when it was appropriate for one to question their parents about things, I asked her how she always knew. Her response? I could smell you. The river was really polluted in those days. It was during one of these conversations that I also asked my mother why she never dated or remarried after my dad died. I was aware even as a young child that she had numerous opportunities. After all, my mother was a true beauty. She told me that she knew she would never find another man to treat her like my dad did. You see, my dad was ahead of his time. He would always hold the door open for my mother whether going into the house, into a place of business, or into the car. He treated her with the respect of her being a woman. But when my mother would come to him and ask him to teach her how to do something that was considered to be man's work, my dad, without hesitation or reservation, would say okay. One time, according to my mom, she asked my dad to show her how to change the oil in the car. He did it without question. My dad believed in and respected the reverence of a woman, but considered them equal as well. They all, my grandparents, my parents, and even Uncle Charlie, each in their own ways were my role models. They still are. When I feel that I have faltered in some way, I reflect back on my youth, and to these people, and remember, emphatically, who I am. I want to thank you sincerely for spending this time with me and for allowing me to share another story with you, this time, a very personal story. Until next time, this is David Robert Farmery. And yes, as always, this episode is copyrighted 2020, all rights reserved. See you next time.